Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. No, when it you're comes never to keeping things short. Go on. I'm five, You're five. Not <laughs> when it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. And you always pronounce them so well. Check <laughs> it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media, ten bucks covers our website for a month, and twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So there are like maybe a hundred people in this world that have a lapel pin. So we want to double that number. Seriously, right. 20 bucks. That's yeah. less than what Oliver spends each week on light-bodied red wines, whatever they are. <laughs> like Gamay, you know, like a Cru Beaujolais, you know. Don't think it can give? Yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Oh. Okay, that was too many calls to action. So the main call to action is give us money, because that's obviously how you can help us. The other thing you can do is review us on iTunes, is that what you said? So if you don't feel like giving us money and you don't feel like spending precious time typing, what you can do is just click that share button when you see our post on Facebook, and you could like our page, actually. If you like our page, that helps us get to more people because Facebook is evil, and it basically helps us see your friends. Most of all, <laughs> keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. And retweet, because Toby loves that. <laughs> Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. Here in the Lakeside Studio, we are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined tonight by Matt Cummings and no one else. <laughs> All right, tonight, Venice is underwater, at least more underwater than usual. We'll take you through why losing the City of Bridges would be an irreplaceable loss for the world of opera. But first, Oliver goes inside the huddle with Clay Hilly, who is quickly becoming known to the Lyric Opera Chicago audience as uh, the singer of Father Grenville in Dead Man Walking. This American held in tenor returns later this season to cover Siegfried. Plus, in the two-minute drill, you'll never guess who's written his first opera. It's Kanye West. And of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. 847-866-9687 or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. And now without further ado... Matt Cummings, how how are you? I'm good. Good to see you. I feel like we're in a treehouse, and we pulled the ladder up and didn't let anyone else in. <laughs> no Oliver allowed. No George allowed. No Toby even. Wow. It's for this the best. Is... <laughs> so, uh, what, you got any news for me in sports? <laughs> you did not Here, prepare. We found, the, we found the fatal flaw in this pairing. <laughs> I mean, you know, at this point of year, I've said it before, I'll say it again. The only thing I have to know is how to say Roll Tide, and it's probably accurate I'm, i believe they still are rolling i'm basically always counting down the months until the next olympics which we are in Ooh. single digits everyone Ooh, so, so how exciting. about that <laughs> all right let's talk some opera huddle up let's go inside the huddle that's right you're listening to opera box score we're going inside the huddle 
Having received the Wagner Society of New York's top prize in 2015, critical acclaim for Clay Hilly's clarion Heldon tenor is building with praise coming from the New York Times, Opera News, and even that dangerous place, Parterre Box. Demand for Hilly is on the rise for some of the repertoire's most punishing roles, and we are thrilled to present him in what is perhaps his most punishing role of all as an interview guest with creative consultant Oliver Camacho. But first, let's hear Hilly in the Trinkley from Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde with the Apollo Orchestra. So John Frederick West, we talked earlier, is the teacher who sort of gave you the Heldon Tenor stamp of approval. Yes, absolutely. And I was, uh, there's not a more qualified person to give it, honestly. He, uh, you know, someone who's been in the trenches, who sang the heroic rep, but also did not get pigeonholed in, in language and style. You know, he sang, he sang a very formidable, you know, Kanyo in in uh, San Francisco Opera as recently as, I think, 2006. And he was in the his last uh, Siegfrieds were at the Met in '09, so as recently as then, he was still, you know, delivering the delivering the goods on these big, these big stages. And to have him bring me under his wing in around 2015 um, <clears throat> was re- was really nice and really, it was just you know, it's, it's eye opening. Like it's, it's great to it's great to have your opinion of yourself, you know, be, you know, be confirmed by someone who knows what they're talking about. And so a lot of things fell to the wayside uh, when I started working with him. By that I mean, you know, I stopped being offered things that I, well, I had already um, ceased being offered things that I had done in my late 20s, Don Jose, Pinkerton, Rodolfo, um, you know, stuff that most, for most, for most tenors, it's, that's big rep. But for me, it was almost too light, and hence, I was really not being offered them anymore now that I was on into my 30s. And John was like, don't worry, don't cry every time you go audition for José and don't get it, because you're destined for Samson, you're destined for Le Troyen. And, and so, you know, that's, that's a good feeling to have. It's a good feeling to know that you're not aging out of your repertoire, that the stuff you're aging out of is stuff that, actually, frankly, there's just a bigger pool of singers that are, that right. are, that are, that are vying for those parts. So for people who... Maybe don't quite get the concept of Heldon Tenor. Yes. <laughs> Can you describe to me what it, what is really the difference between being like a, a full lyric or like a lyricos pinto and being a Heldon Tenor? Right, right. This is we're this, for the broader public. This is sort of splitting hairs. But when one says the term Heldon Tenor, it's just it's just the adverbial form of hero. So in in Deutsch, Held H E L D is hero. And Helden, H-E-L-D-E-N, it just means heroic. So Helden tenor, heroic tenor. It just means that I specialize in the roles of Strauss, Wagner, Beethoven, Erich Korngold, and sort of the concert, the concert works of, of Mahler, as was previously mentioned. Um, 
and what it means functionally is you literally have a voice that can that can penetrate to use also to use a previous a term previously cited penetrate gigantic orchestras including brass sections your voice has native characteristics about it that when everything is functioning free from a technique standpoint your voice has enough we say you know for lack of a better term has enough metal in it to contend with a hundred you know a hundred member orchestra sawing away um so that i think that's what yeah that's what so Elden Tenor is it resonance means. or is it breath one can't achieve the resonance without proper breath and proper support by that i mean you know there was it was a big thing that that opened my eyes working with john because it wasn't just repertoire ideas and stylistic ideas it was technique ideas things that i had long forgot or things that i was had thought I had long gotten too cool for, um, like, oh, I don't need to really stand up straight because I have this great technique or whatever. I have this great voice. I can sing in any position. And yeah, that's great. That's fine to an extent. But I was starting to get, to get feedback from auditions, even reviews in some papers saying that I was getting kind of a pinched uh, upper register and that my, I was getting kind of, there was, was kind of this unexplained bleat, mm-hmm. like think, think baby goat. I was getting this bleat in my upper upper passaggio, and John was like, you know, we're going to solve that. You know, just simply open up your chest, stand up a little taller. You're going to look better. You're going to sound better. And there, there's like voice lesson 101. Just simply open up your chest and be more be more vulnerable, be more presentational, present more of your of yourself to your audience, and that's going to solve some technique things. And lo and behold, my wobble, or the bleat rather. Um, sort of went away, and also just other simple things like drop your jaw when you're singing. I used to think I was like really cool and really whatever by being able to produce this gigantic sound without without looking like you're doing anything. <laughs> and it comes to find out like there's just there's something to it when I believe it was Benjamino Gigli said, and I got this through John West that you know if you can't fit your index finger and middle finger between your teeth, you are not your jaw is not open enough to sing. Bigly and in your upper register without without some sort of, you know without some unwieldy problems in terms of vibrato, um, and also finally getting back to your actual question about the breath, and yes, breath, I I could sing above the staff just fine. I could in my mind I could, I could sing above the staff fine. In my own ears it was fine, and actually in the audience's ears it was fine enough. It's only after I worked with John where John would really taught me and I knew that I knew that support came low I knew it came from the bottom of your feet I mean it came from like you know being grounded fully grounded in the earth to get to those high notes but it was really it was really an idea of accessing my lower back that was the other thing in order to really not just sing the note fine and audibly but to really cause that excitement in the audience I mean that the audience would feel from like having having access to full like roundness and tallness and the dark and the light all at once and all that I've found comes thanks to John that all comes from a reliance on your lower back muscles when you're up in the top hmm. you mentioned a minute ago about uh, slack jaw and about you know <laughs> open jaw and we were talking about or I was maybe inquiring it does your southernness contribute at all to a relaxed jaw position yeah i think it does we we drop a lot of a lot of final consonants we elongate a lot of vowels and there's very minimal mouth movement when you talk to southerners <laughs> so in in some ways southerners have 
maybe have an advantage and you know in and, and lack of jaw tension. Lots, lots of time. Another voice, voice lesson 101. Why are you dictating everything with your mouth? You know, it's just for a southerner, that's not so much a big deal. <laughs> I, I would also say there's probably not as much lip tension. Although, that, I mean, again, we're not speaking scientifically. I haven't done any great studies on it, but I'm just I'm theorizing that perhaps lip tension isn't that big a thing for most southerners. However, since I started out on the trumpet in the fifth grade, um, you know. Your trumpet playing is like utterly dependent on just how tight can you purse your lips and and make that buzz sound in the in the mouthpiece. And I kept trumpet all through all through you know fifth so fifth grade all the way through you know high school. Does the amount of like pressure that you have to you know it's whatever to make the formants um, when you play trumpet does that have anything to do with how you've discovered your own resonance and how you can access you know head tones and etc. Your squealo. I I think while I enjoyed, I love the marching band, I love the pep band, and I love and I love the trumpet and all of it. I did. It really it wasn't particularly. It helped me to learn how to read music when I started piano the year after I started trumpet. But it, I had to unlearn a lot of things honestly. Okay. Because I I was never really taught. I never took trumpet lessons. It was just like I was just in the band and like okay. the the band director the gave me all the points. Gave it. Me, I, it well, I, I didn't. I didn't play I didn't play woodwinds until I had methods classes for my ed degree, but but um, trumpet is difficult, and I think I actually picked up some bad habits. I, I, would, I would I would actually pressurize a lot from my throat, not really realizing that like your whole body is like the lungs are way down here, bro. Mm-hmm. Like taking deep breaths and like playing the trumpet, it never it, had I known then what I know now about breath. I think I would have been a much better trumpet player. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, I, I do think I was in the the unlearning uh, camp. When I started singing, uh, unfortunately, but hey, it, it's all a process. It all takes. For um, was it Marlena Miles says it takes twenty years to build a vocal technique, and hmm. you know. I'm so glad that I heard you when I did because I think maybe if I heard you when you had like a pinch top or like <laughs> a, I would like I would have probably just written you off. But like now it's so clear to me because I have really, maybe I have really good taste <laughs> that you are an exceptional singer. Oh, my friend. Technically an exceptional singer. And after hearing your Mahler and now hearing this small role you do in Dead Man Walking, knowing that you have a command of diction and you have command of at least the style of this Germanic repertoire, what is repertoire that you are actually passionate about? And if we, like, tooled around on your website, we might find you singing, so. Yeah, I've always, I've always been a fan of of Wagner. Long before I knew I would even sing opera. I mean, literally, I remember... Being in the Borders bookstore back when Borders was a thing, mm-hmm. and they had the of course Borders dot com. That's right, <laughs> they, and they had the, I mean just on the like an end cap display, they had like a, a, a the Schulte ring like reduced down to like ten tracks. You know, okay. Highlights yeah. of the Ring des Nibelungen. Yeah. I just picked it up. I only recently just kind of dipped my toe into opera as a member of like the opera ensemble at the University of Georgia, and I just I just bought it. And I, was, I remember just listening to it, just, just playing. I remember being like, wow, this is crazy stuff. It, that, the first thing on it was the, 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 the ascent into Valhalla at the end of Rheingold. And then I believe, there, I mean, obviously this is the Ride of the Valkyries and Wotan's Farewell. And then for Siegfried, it was, you know, the forging scene song, yeah. and then the, the Waldweben. But then it was the Gutter Dämmerung, Siegfried's Funeral March. Again, not, not a vocal sound uttered. But that made it on the top ten, you know, yeah. of, of all the sixteen hours, seventeen hours of music they could have, they could have boiled down to put on a highlight CD. They have one that has no no vocal notes uttered at all, and that was the one 
That was the one that I almost ran off the road listening to. I was like, that's just the coolest thing ever. It took me a long time to make it through the, the emulation scene, however. That did take a while. But I, <laughs> I did. I, I came by Wagner quite naturally. Again, like I said, just a curious kid, idealistic kid in a Borders bookstore. And then, years and years later, having done some time as a educational outreach tenor for Indianapolis Opera. Like they opera had for the back. young type of thing. That's <laughs> right, that's right. 95-something performances of, get this, Goldilocks and the Three Bears oh and God. Outer Space I, to the music of the Magic Flute. I know exactly what you're talking you about. You understand. So, <laughs> so, but Indianapolis Opera was wonderful to me. They brought me back uh, the year after I completed my sort of young artist duties there as Fro for Rheingold. Oh, good. So I was only 26 or something like that, or maybe 27. And there I am singing beside these these Wagnerian greats and Greer Grimsley, mm-hmm. oh and um, that's right, and um, and uh, Richard Paul Fink, and I mean all these all these like serious singers. Like, literally, some were delayed a day or two getting to the rehearsal process because they were closing, go to Demerung at the Met, you know. And um, so there, and then I did the Stroyamon some years later. Then I did, covered Eric, and then I did Act One of Valkyrie, and then next thing I know, I'm doing the reduced version of the Ring. So I, I'm a Wagnerian. I came by it honest. It was not foisted upon me. Yeah. I, I I loved it long before I knew I would sing opera at all, much less as a career, and much less sing that literal repertoire. Is so, there yes, an I'm actual passionate. like club that we don't know about of people who sing Wagner? <laughs> like, have your own Facebook group and you talk to each other about? <laughs> yes, there is. There is one called the BFVC on Facebook called the Big. Mm, voice club <laughs> and yes you you have to be invited and i'll invite anybody because i don't i don't really care but but um there's um i guess there's that and then there's i guess we're all just kind of in touch with each other in some way or another we all we all have the same difficulty in our you know in our young years of being too big for small rep but not old enough to sing the big rep like you know you know in, in the eyes of, of of a lot of people and so we all we all kind of bear each other's burdens, I think. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been called by, by health and tenor colleagues and, you know, gigs have been, gigs have been handed off to me because they couldn't do it for one reason or another. Or if an offer comes my way and I'm available, I usually tip someone else off. Mm-hmm. You know, we all, I find that at least for our case, I mean, just, I only know my own experience and, and I'm glad that that seems to be a, seems to be a, a camaraderie that we have in the big voice club. So we're going to have Siegfried here in Chicago. I mean, uh, Gotha Damrang here in Chicago coming shortly, and then Siegfried as part of the ring cycle. Mm. You've obviously studied the role of Siegfried. Uh, yes. Is there something about this role or maybe a particular musical moment that you can talk to us about and just like really nerd out on, like, oh, this is so cool because... Siegfried is so on paper so one-dimensional... But over the course of the night, and that's what kind of makes it, his journey so cool, is that over the course of the night, his music becomes less whimsical and, you know, much more much more thoughtful. He enters with his friend, the bear, at the top of the show. He's chiding his, his surrogate father, who has only ever been a nuisance to him, and, well, vice versa. And there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this animosity that each has for the other, but but the father figure knows that he must, to some degree, keep Siegfried alive until he's old enough and strong enough to kill the aforementioned Fafner. And the music goes from just so so silly and fun in the beginning to this extremely difficult 
um, extremely difficult forging scene, which the, everyone knows the Schmiede lead. No tongue, no tongue, nightly Schwer. The 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 one that has. Uh, oh, ho, yeah. ho 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 I mean, that's everyone knows that one. What people perhaps don't respect as much because it is utterly thankless is what's called the Hammerlied. People probably remember that. People probably just notice the hammering that's going on, but the vocalism there is insane. It's a strophic piece. Utterly, I, I don't know how I could do it without the wonderful Susan Hult here in the case of the case of Chicago Lyric, who the is a pro, okay. our, our, our wonderful prompter. As a matter of fact, I met her in San Francisco, also prompting um, uh, Rheingold and, and Siegfried. And she has helped me through. Matter of fact, she even helps me with the, you know, it's scored in a specific way. There is not, you don't only have to memorize the the hammer hits. There's actually, there's, it's actually scored so that you must hit the anvil but there's also three different markings on exactly how hard. There's like these light hits, and there's these really heavy hits, and then there's the hits with a other with a, a different hammer altogether. And like I said, it's a strophic song, so you get the same music two times, but different words. So Sweet Susan, last year when I did the cover run here of, of the Siegfried, she not only helped me with every single word, but she also <laughs> she also had like a whole like system sign like language system yeah. of letting me of letting me know exactly which which hammer to use and how hard to hit and everything. But it's like once you finish that, you are on top of the world, and you also know that all the all the hardest music is done. And yeah. thankful, thankfully, yeah. it's at the end of Act One, and Act One is just treacherously difficult. And then you actually have a lot. You have a whole you have intermission and a whole scene to take a vacation, calm down. And when you come back, you sing the most beautiful music of the night, contemplative, low in the range, as we mentioned earlier. It's low, it's conversant, it's not heavily orchestrated, it's beautiful. You're talking about how beautiful the forest is, and oh gosh, I never met my mother. Did I have a mother? If, if I did, oh my goodness, how beautiful must she have been? And just this wonder, just this, you just get to go in, you get to go into that side of the guy, the thoughtfulness of the guy, instead of just the, the, the petulant, harassing Mima thing, and they're yeah. all building, you know, forging the, the sword. Teenage hormones. Okay. Too, that's right, yeah, just the, the petulance of being young. And then by Act Three, you know, when he finally learns fear by actually encountering an actual, actual in the flesh, you know, woman in the in the figure of Brunhilde, then the change that has on him. I mean, the music get the music gets insane in Act Three, but of course we know that's because there was a ten-year compositional hiatus between Siegfried Act Two and Siegfried Act Three. He had changed his compositional style entirely. Matter of fact, he had some he had numerous existential crises in there. Wagner did. Wondering how he was even going to finish it, uh, how he wanted the ring cycle to, to resolve at all, and uh, he wrote Meisterzinger, the entirety of Meisterzinger and Tristan und Isolde between Acts two and three, <laughs> before he got back to writing Act three. So, a lot changes, and yes, it's a it's a it's a fun night of catching numerous numerous aspects of this guy who, on paper, is an utter simpleton. And we talked about. Um the idea of pacing as a health and tenor mm. and like knowing when to save and knowing when to give. And you've worked with Mark Oswald. <clears throat> like, Well, for, for pacing and, 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 and stamina, it's gotta be someone who's been in the trenches. It's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be someone like John. It's gotta be someone who spent numerous nights. Nice that maybe you just, maybe you wanted to wake up and cancel, but you know, you can't cancel because they don't get paid and you've got to, you just gotta know when to save. And in a role that huge, it's the, it's the largest tenor role that exists by a long shot. He sings for um, over 2,000. It's over 2,000 measures of music. And it's 
aside from what I mentioned a minute ago about Act 2 being low in the register, most of it is stratospherically high and relentless and thickly orchestrated. So it takes someone who knows, who's, who's been there numerous nights on all on varying, varying degrees of phrase by phrase, mood is, yeah. and, 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 and physical health mm-hmm. and knowing how to, to manage it. Um, you, mentioned, you mentioned my great teacher from Manhattan School of Music when I was there for a, a single year. Was, it was Mark Oswald, and yes, he he absolutely brought my voice from being a like a good a good high voiced male singer with a with a very good foundation, and he turned that into like actually sounded like one of the guys. I sounded like one of the guys on the recordings that we like. Oh, I mean, I, I don't want to give myself that much credit, but something that's like tenorially respectable, with knowing exactly <laughs> where in the range we flip over and we and we know how to cover and really make the voice ring. And all, but of course that also, I mean, the technique is tied into the stamina. It's not just, you can't just have someone stand there and be like, okay, sing quiet here. And I'll sing loud here. Of course you have to know the how mm-hmm. of all that too. And of course, you know, John has given me, you know, a, an amazing, an amazing technique and, or he refined an already existing, um, you know, very good technique polished by John, uh, excuse me, polished by, by Mark Oswald, and then and then from my my grad school training and undergrad, and you know it all it's all a long process. So you mentioned a minute ago uh, about your wife, your then fiance. Yes. Um, there is a video of you proposing to her. There is. That was I, from a concert you were doing right. in the, a Wagner Society. Of that's New York. right. The Wagner Society of New York <clears throat> awarded me their first prize in 2015 in their competition. And tried over the next couple of years to to get me uh, featured in a, in a recital, and the schedules just didn't work out until I was about to cover. I was about to begin rehearsals as an understudy for Parsifal for my first gig at the Met, and that began, I believe, on January the eighth of twenty eighteen. And the Wagner Society was like, "How about we do a recital on the sixth of January?" This so happens to be my my girlfriend Sarah's birthday, so I cooked up this idea because I'd been wanting to propose and I was like, well, that's a great time to do it. I'll pay, I'll pay good money to have a good videographer, a good sound, good sound and video. And <clears throat> I will masquerade as though this is going to be a, um, just like a, just like a love song, um, birthday gift for, for, for my encore. And then known to me and everyone else, but not to Sarah was that I had, a diamond ring in my coat pocket, and I proposed on the high C at the end of "Be My Love." Mario Lanza, <laughs> a Mario Lanza hit, and uh, yes, we we knew the the importance of getting a clickbait uh, title for the for the resulting video, and that was "Metropolitan Tenor Shocks Audience with Surprise Encore." Nice. <laughs> So your wife is actually also a singer. She is. Um, could you tell us her name? Yes. 
Sarah Duchovny, D-U-C-H-O-V-N-A-Y. Like David Duchovny. That's just, that's right. That's okay. right. And you have already had an engagement together. You did a Kanye Neda. That's right. Well, we met doing, we met doing a gig in actually this very state down in uh, southern Illinois, though. It was the SIU Fest in Carbondale. Southern Illinois University has a summer festival. And we were both working on Lucia. And she was also doing uh, Abduction. And we met there and became instantaneous friends and then started dating about a year and a half after that. And then, yes, as a married couple, fast forward to 2019. We met in 2014. But it, so now 2019, we just did Payachi together. Sarah started out as kind of an Ina and an Etta and, um, you know, was a trick pony for the, for the stratospheric high stuff. And then, you know, as, as voices like that do, they kind of sink down and she's working on new rep now. And so Nedda was sort of now her, her bread and butter uh, type repertoire now. And I was privileged to sing Kanye with her. And yes, it's rare that two working independent contracting musicians get to actually line up a gig and actually yeah. be on stage together, but we were able to do it there, and we, we try to organize as many sort of little concerts and things like that as, as we possibly can, and um, and we'll continue. We just did, actually, she was in Egypt of Helena as well. Oh, wow. So Odyssey Opera, when I was singing the Menelaus, she sang uh, one of Aitra's uh, servants, and so we got, nice. to be, we got to be on stage, just, you know, we try as often as possible. Well, there's a whole other conversation about how to maintain a relationship between two opera singers, which maybe we'll have another time. Yes. I would be remiss to not ask you about your sports fandom. Oh, man. You must know I'm from Georgia. So, yes, I'm, we're looking forward to a big rivalry matchup this weekend, the Georgia Bulldogs versus the Auburn Tigers. It's the South's oldest rivalry. That's the nickname for the game. And a lot is riding on it. Two nights ago, or, or was it just, it was just last night, that the College Football Playoff Committee put Georgia in – um, in the fourth spot on the playoff rankings. And so I think that turned a lot of heads. I think everyone expected the Bama Crimson Tide would obviously be ranked above. And, of course, they are ranked above us by the by the coaches' bowl and the AP. But we managed to get the football playoff committee to award us that fourth slot. So lots is ri- lot, a lot is riding on the remainder of the schedule. And, yes, I am just an, an avid, avid Southeastern Conference uh, football fan, always was. Well, I have no idea what you just said, but I'm very <laughs> happy that you were able to do this interview for Opera Box. Well, Bar. I can. Yes, that's right. You can. You can light me up on other topics that aren't <laughs> Wagner. So that's important. I think. Got to be real people, right? Clay Hilly, thank you so much. Thanks, my friend. Thanks, Oliver. Venice is underwater, and so is an important piece of opera history. Matt Cummings is here to walk you through all of that good history. That's next, only on America's talk radio show about opera, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided by Boston Early Music Festival, presenting La Storia di Orfeo, Friday, November 29th, and Sunday, December 1st, at New England Conservatory's Jordan Hall in Boston. Oh, yeah, good old Bean Town. Hey, would you like your chowder? Park your car in Harvard Yard. <laughs> 
That was really good accent. That was just like, no. that just, was bad. That was like seeing Dead Man Walking. That was like Dead Man Walking. Dead Man Walking. Orpheus, the divine musician who ventures to the underworld in a desperate bid to save his beloved Eurydice, 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 Eurydice. has been... Hey. An, has been an enduring source of inspiration for composers across the centuries. Superstar. Superstar countertenor Philippe Jarouski, also known as my husband, and sublime soprano Amanda Forsyth draw on three Italian Baroque operas to create a vivid pastiche of this tragic legend for the concert stage. Yeah, this story never gets old. Nope. I mean, Oliver, you referred to Eurydice in all these different languages. There's all these different versions of this tale. It is such a great story, including a play by Sarah Rule. It's just really important when revisiting this story that you remember to never look back. Agree. Yeah. All right. Grammy award-winning music degree. Does that? That's what. <laughs> that's how I know that. That's incredible. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Grammy award-winning musical directors Paul Odette and Stephen Stubbs lead arias and duets by Claudio Monteverdi, Luigi Rossi, and Antonio Sartorio with these incomparable artists in a program also featuring instrumental interludes from other Baroque masters performed by the all-star Boston Early Music Festival oh, Chamber. You and you really get your money worth on this program. Yeah, you do. Don't it's you nice that your names yeah. pronounced correctly. You're making me oh, hungry. Say, don't miss Philippe Chiruski and Amanda. Forsyth and La Storia di Orfeo. For tickets and more information, go to bemf.org, B-E-M-F dot org. End of ad. If you've been following the news, as uh, Matt and I have, because we're responsible. We're nerds, you can say it. <laughs> well, if you've been following the news, uh, you probably know that the city of Venice in Italy, um, I don't know why I felt the need to specify that it was in Italy, uh, is currently experiencing some of the worst flooding they've ever seen there, which is saying something because Venice is practically underwater anyway. I know. It's been sinking at the rate of like a fraction of an inch every year. Yeah. And so with the ocean, with the sea levels rising faster than expected and Venice continuing to sink into the lagoon upon which it is built, uh, things are getting a lot worse a lot faster than people expected. And so there are mm-hmm. all there were all kinds of plans for... Uh, the this pump system that was supposed to be able to keep the worst of the the worst of the flooding away and it it's not ready yet it's not operational yet yes it's it's very much one of those uh sort of uh tragedies sort of playing out over our, uh, in front of our eyes that unfortunately are probably going to become more and more uh, <laughs> noticeable over the next few years due to climate change um but uh we wanted to highlight Venice in particular because Venice holds a very special place in opera history as well and we really want to sort of emphasize that um the arts and this great legacy of music and opera is uh, just as harmed uh, as any, you know, uh, structure or, or species by, by climate change. So you want to tell us a little bit about what makes Venice so special? Yeah, so a part of it has to do with what, what Venice's political situation was. Uh, during the Renaissance, Venice was one of the uh, seafaring maritime republics, as you all may remember from your middle school one social those. studies <laughs> classics. Uh, it was basically f- uh, f- Venice and Genoa, I think, were the two big ones. Right. And uh, because Venice had this kind of... 
uh, trade clout and uh, and contact with both Western Europe and uh, the Turkish Empire mm-hmm. and 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 other other powers even farther to the east. Uh, they had a lot of contact with with talented people. They had a lot of money, and they had political institutions that allowed for music to take hold there in a way that it did differently than in other parts of Europe. So actually, going back a couple hundred years before the beginning of opera, actually, one thing that was really important, that scholars point out as being really important in Venice's uh, Venice's rise as this musical superpower is that the person who ca- the, uh, the Petrucci, the father of modern music printing, mm. invented this way of triple printing multiple staves of music with the the staves and then the notes and then the text. Oh wow! So that neat. you could so that you could get high quality prints of music. And he was even he was granted a monopoly over this for a, for a little while. And then <laughs> because it was Venice and it wasn't just complete. Uh, aristocratic oversight of things competition when it came in but so you have this publishing music publishing industry uh in the, that leading into the renaissance turns into an explosion of church music especially due to uh the saint mark's basilica in, in the main square of venice which is one of the places most affected by the flooding right yes. now yes uh and it would be a t- it will be is a terrible loss that that St. Mark's is being threatened like this because the the building itself has has a lot of import for musical history because yeah. it has all these bell, it has multiple different choir lofts and uh what Venetian composers came up with was how to use this building to create music that they couldn't do anywhere else. So the, the, this Venetian school of music is characterized by having multiple choirs or multiple ensembles in different parts of the church, singing oh, things wow. back at each other. Uh, and, and that kind of Venetian polychoral, uh, polychoral tradition uh, brought people like Claudio Monteverdi, the first major opera composer, to Venice to become... He moved there in 1613, bringing with him, uh, sort of at the height of his, uh, maybe not the height of his fame, but... It was just... This was seven years after... Six years after Lafayette? Around then, and recently after the the Vespers of 1610, which was a part, I, I believe, was part of his audition for the job. And going back to sort of the basilica, just a little bit. Uh, I've I've always said that you know I, I'm I've been interested by period informed performance uh, performances ever since I first heard the term, uh, and for me, really, the holy grail is not just having the instruments, not just all this academia about what this what this notation means or how it might be played, but the the, the really sort of the the holy grail of all of that is having the building for which it was composed because the unique acoustics of a building will can can bring clarity in a way that you you couldn't really get otherwise in a very instinctive musical way right these composers were working in a world that this music was only was expected to be performed maybe only just the one time that it was being written for Absolutely. that day. And it's, it's you know, uh, the, my go-to example is uh, is Bayreuth, because, you know, me and Wagner, we go way back. Uh, uh, Bayreuth, uh, my, my number one example is that at the end of Goethe Demerung, which is post the big long hiatus when he actually started writing again uh, with Bayreuth in mind, um, there is one bass trombone note right at the, uh, uh, right before Flick Dier and Robin, you know, that's during the immolation scene uh, exactly. of Get to Demerung, for those of you who are not <laughs> Who don't have heads. the encyclopedic yeah. knowledge right here. Um, the, the, it, if you listen to recordings, and I have, of, uh, of, of you know, studio recordings, uh, live recordings in other places, the way that bass trombone hits 
is very odd. It, 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 it's, it either sticks out too much or you can't hear it enough. Weston, only you could take a discussion about Monteverdi <laughs> and turn it into a thesis on Wagner. This is what happens when Oliver isn't here. <laughs> but the, the, the way it resonates specifically in that building ties the entire thing together. And this is the kind of thing that we would absolutely lose, not just if, if the Basilica went away uh, in Venice, but if, if these other buildings go away and even if the entire sort of city went underwater you would lose the the spirit of the city and you know that that spirit of the city is part of what develop what helped opera develop when it was just an infant uh because uh, mo- the two of the three monteverdi operas that we still have premiered in venice the uh, return of ulysses to his fatherland oh, yes. and uh the coronation of Popea both premiered in venice uh in the mid 17th century uh when monteverdi was an old man and uh, that part of that has to do with the fact that um, if you know, if you can remember other things that you might know about Venice from your <laughs> from your history classes, they have the they have their Carnival Festival that ha- right. right before Lent, uh, and so that is of central importance to Venice, and it attracted a who's who of Europe to the town to witness this new form of music and drama uh, just when it was starting to gain popularity. And not only were these fancy rich people coming to town and party and go to the opera. But Venice, uh, being not quite so bound by uh, class divisions as other parts of Europe, I mean that, that's not to say that it was this classless utopia, right? But um, <laughs> there was there was still plenty of you know patrician behind the scenes things. But uh, it wasn't opera wasn't kept behind closed doors the way it had been in in Florence. Uh, the Venetian opera theaters were open to the public as long as they could afford to buy tickets, and right. that. That came hundred. That came a significant period of time before that was available in other parts of Europe. I believe the first uh, public commercial theater was the Teatro San Cassiano, which opened in 1637. Yeah, it, which it, is it, only 30 years after. Yeah, it had been a straight theater play, right? Uh, playhouse, and when it uh, w- when it burned down, uh, one of the local uh, aristocratic families got permission to bring it back as a public opera theater. So th- this is really sort of where the birthplace of opera as a publicly accessible um, art form really began to took off to take off because uh, it's very possible that without this precedent set by Venice, we might have it might have been one of those things that died with the European nobility. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, you look at all the sort of the habits of, uh, of like the, the like their clothing or, or, yeah, or exactly. and, a, and a lot of their food. Yeah, it, while while I'm sure some part would have leaked out eventually, uh, something like opera, opera as we know it, certainly uh, with the sort of the avant-garde, uh, seconda practica kind of people, it, w- it would not have ever been accessible to the public, and that would have changed what kinds of stories were made, the limits on what t- kinds of stories could even be told, right? Uh, and and the uh, and, and the versatility and the way it spoke to real people um, and uh, and uh, who were not just sitting in a palace somewhere. Yeah, and <laughs> so one one of these more. Um one of these more progressive composers is Venice's native son, the 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 one composer that you probably c- would connect with Venice, which is Antonio Vivaldi. Is he the seasons guy? He is the seasons guy. <laughs> he, I mean, Vivaldi's life story, I think, would make for a great like swashbuckling kind of oh, movie because he would. he was a priest yeah. and he taught at this orphanage, uh, and he 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 with with all these young girls, and he would write these 
fantastically difficult violin concerti that he was teaching them to, to prepare. They think he might have played in one of the orchestras that that played in St. Mark's back in the day. Right. And he was also uh, an opera impresario because that's where a lot of them that 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 was uh, a way that he could make some money. Actually, they were they were pretty. They were pretty successful, and he produced somewhere. No one is quite no. No one's quite sure exactly how many operas he has. Somewhere between fifty and ninety-four. I think they found fifty, and there's a reference <laughs> to him saying something about ninety-four. And people don't know if it, it, it if he wrote ninety-four. Maybe he or was if he just put on ninety-four. Maybe he was just counting the parts he didn't reuse. Maybe he was just counting how many notes <laughs> happen and how many notes occur in one measure. Vivaldi opera is never really quite caught in, caught on to the repertoire the way that like Handel did or or even Monte. Severity, you could Which say. is a shame. I feel like I feel like he's making a bit of a comeback. There, there's a push to record because a lot of his operas. Because it's so difficult. We do have a little yeah. bit of a clip of uh, of Vivica Genot singing yeah, one of the arias from uh, Cato and Unica. Cato in Unica. Let's let's have a little listen to that. Here we go. Just hear what they're in for. That's what we call in the business a too many notes, Matt. Yeah. And so just like there were too many notes in that clip, Venice had a lot of opera theaters going into go, go, going in at at the end of the 18th century there were still five main theaters producing opera independently and there had been as many as 16 at one point. Which I think saying, I read. Like, Venice is not it's, I've been to Venice. It's not a very large city. Yeah. It, it it really feels very small scale to have to have that many theaters at the same well across that period period of time is really phenomenal. And if we can take one thing that's maybe a little bit positive away from the story, it's that Venice has grit and they have determination mm-hmm. and they are going to make their city survive no matter what it takes. And you can see that in the story of their main opera house today, uh, the Teatro La Fenice. What does uh, La Fenice mean? La Fenice means the Phoenix. And it was named the Phoenix because in 1836, the nicest theater in town uh, burnt down and they came up with this plan to build this fabulous new theater uh, called La Fenice that would rise from the ashes of this other one. Oh, wow. That theater also burned down. Oh. And, <laughs> and then, it, uh, then it was rebuilt in the, in the late 1800s, and it functioned. Oh, good. And it happened for a little bit longer uh, it, until 1996 when it burned down again. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was reopened, I believe, in two thousand three. Yes, that that is correct. I actually, um, um, uh, uh, an old professor of mine, and when I was in uh, uh, college, uh, he was actually there in nineteen ninety six when it burned down, uh, and he uh, a fire that may or may not have been arson. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Maybe he did it. Two I people don't know. were convicted of setting of starting the fire for arson. Right, but other but sources that I've read do suggest that that might have been some sort of a scapegoat thing. Yeah, yeah, I I could believe it. it. It's such a symbol of the city and Italian national identity in general. Uh the, the big thing they that sticks to around a finger at someone. <laughs> exactly. The big thing that sort of sticks out to me uh from the story that my professor always told me uh was the night after it burned down, um all the Venetians uh uh held a candlelit vigil and they all sang Va Pensiero um uh, around the, the chorus of the Hebrew slaves yeah, from, from Nabucco. Nabucco. 
Um, and it, it was uh, it was his, one of the most chilling moments he's ever seen uh, in his life, but also sort of heartwarming. And I think it's, if anything can get us through the ravages of climate change in Europe, it's going to be that sort of spirit, that sort of uh, attitude to rebuild and do better uh, the next time. And we, hopefully won't burn down again. <laughs> we all definitely can do better. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I learned a lot. This is why it's so good to have you on. <laughs> it's been a good week for women who conduct, and apparently it's also been a good week for Kanye West. That's all up next, only on Opera Box Score. That's WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. If you are in the Chicagoland area and want to help support new voices in opera, check out New Moon Opera. True to Shakespearean form, Imogen, Imogen and Leonate are star-crossed lovers torn apart by fate. Um, George, how do you pronounce those names? Imogen and Leonate. And you know this because you're white. Well, I know this because I read Shakespeare. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, reach, I read Shakespeare. So wait a second. Is this Orpheus and Eurydice? No, or is, no this no. is New or Moon this, Opera, bruh. Where were you? Yeah. It Listen just, to the ad. Here. Really Will they find a way to be together when so many are conspiring against them? Don't look back. To f exactly. Don't. To find out, join New Moon Opera. New Moon. I it makes me think like so you should I, drop your pants. I am New not moon. a beer person, oh, but the first beer that I learned to like was Blue Moon. With a little it's an, e it's an yeah. easy, it's, it's an refreshing. easy, like yeah. unfiltered, nice wheat yeah. beer. To find out, join New Moon Opera on Friday, so November twenty second, for a workshop performance of Chicago composer Elizabeth Rudolph's new opera Imogen, based on Shakespeare's George Cymbeline. Cymbeline, see, there we go. This is a unique opportunity to experience and explore a new operatic work. How awesome! You could be in the room for the very first time a work is being presented. You know, people who are at. Uh, that first production workshop of Dog Days saw like the beginning of an opera that's probably going to be part of the American canon. I mean, I'd be able to is, say so. you were there. I was yeah. there when like the you know Tigers won the '84 mm -hmm. World Series. Yeah. I was there when. <laughs> I was there when Elizabeth Rudolph's new opera Imogen. 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 Isn't there like a, a indie There's singer Imogen, Imogen Heap? Heap? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, Imogen I think, Heap. I think that's what it's about. I have about. no idea what you're talking Tickets about. to this are available at newmoonopera.org. That's newmoonopera, and I think you can spell all of those, dot org, yes, O-R-G. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in opera land over the past week. Rapper Kanye West has apparently written an opera entitled Nebuchadnezzar to premiere this November 24th, that's this weekend, at the Hollywood Bowl. We'll have to see how that one sticks up to Verdi's Nabucco, which is on the same subject. Jonathan Friend will leave his post as artistic administrator of the Metropolitan Opera at the end of this season after some 35 years. Michael Heaston will take over the position in July. Heaston previously uh, served as the Met's executive director of the Lindemann Young Artist Development Program. Program. San Antonio Opera has announced a shakeup in the leadership of the company. E. Lauren Meeker will be the next general and artistic director, uh, along with Francesco Miliotto, who will be the music director. 
Opera Project Columbus is the latest in Operaland to find itself in the middle of a hashtag MeToo scandal. In May, a woman filed a Title IX complaint against con conductor Alessandro Siciliani for sexual misconduct during rehearsals following an escalation of anger-related unprofessional conduct and resignations tied to the conductor. Janae Bridges recently spoke to the New York Times about her upcoming Met debut as Nefertiti in Philip Glass's Akhenaten and why she gave up a career in basketball for the opera stage. Quote, I'm thankful for my athletic background. It wasn't such a shocker that I had to practice all the time to be a singer. A link to that article will be on our website. Aftensi Pizzi has become the first black South African woman to conduct and own the first ever all-black orchestra, Anchored Sound, which she helped form as a choir group she put together back in 2017. Quote, you have to have a certain kind of confidence to stand on that podium and lift a baton and conduct people who are looking at you saying, but she's a woman because they are used to these old men standing in front of them conducting, she told Sowetan Live News. You have to walk in there with a certain kind of reverence and confidence. Lina gonzalez Granados has been tapped for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's International Sir George Schulte Conducting Apprenticeship with Ricardo Muti. The apprenticeship will begin in February 2020 and continue through June 2021. Marin Alsop has broken her silence on the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra lockout that happened earlier this year. Uh, she had some harsh words for the organization in a truly extraordinary interview with Musical America. Here's a quote for you. Uh, quote, I find this a difficult organization to get airtime in because we don't talk about the art first. No one ever talks to me. Wow, that's good stuff right there. Lincoln Center has announced its 2020 Emerging Artist Award winners, which are given to various artists in different artistic disciplines, including opera. Mezzo-soprano Emily D'Angelo took home the prize in Opera Box Score's favorite category. And exit stage right, Greek contralto Yoria Migremis has died, acclaimed for her interpretations of Atsuchena and Il Trovatore and Ameris and Aida. She became the company manager of the Long Island Opera, treasurer of the Hellenic Music Foundation as well, following her retirement from the opera stage. Soprano Paula Goodman-Wilder also died earlier this month. Her husband, Elaine Gaubert, has announced her passing in a statement. She sa he says, quote, All of you who know, knew her know that we have what we have lost. Passionate about paleontology, IT expert, fierce poet, journalist, photographer, wonderful singer, speaking five languages, became a fine medievalist, cheerful, gregarious, a lover of France who left the doctors and nurses a memory dazzled by her kindness and courage. Mezzo-soprano Mika Shigematsu also died last month. Shigematsu first came to prominence when she was awarded first prize in the mezzo-soprano division of the Japan-Italy Vocal Concorso in 1988, before going on to win first place at the All Japan Music Competition in 1991. And tenor John Wakefield has also died at the age of 83. Wakefield participated in a number of premieres throughout his life, including Nicholas Ma's The Rising of the Moon and Hector Villa-Lobos's Yerma. He also leaves behind a number of recordings he made alongside Sir Colin Davis. And on this day, November 18th, it was the birth of, Car of composer Carl Maria von Weber in 1786 and the birth of conductor Eugene Ormandy in 1899. In 1882, it was the birth of Italian soprano Am Amelita Gallicucci, Ottorino Respighi took a break from writing tone poems about Rome for the premiere of his opera La Campana Somersa in 1927, and it was also the premiere of Nico Muli's Marnie way back in 2017. And that is your two-minute drill.
And that is a clip of uh, Amelita Gallicucci singing from Bellini's La Sonambula, um, a fun little aria there. With uh, I, I love listening to old recordings like that. It really gives you a sense of what was different then. She you know? had one of the most insane techniques of all time. She could just absolutely. pull these little pinpoint high notes out of absolutely nowhere. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> really great. What's what stood out to you in the two minute drill today? So it's really interesting that um that Jonathan Friend is retiring and I'm not seeing a ton of uh, because this is kind of an end the end of an era in terms of like the Met casting staff. He has been there since the mid eighties, the early to mid eighties. Wow. He came in as Joan Ingpen's assistant and she was she was brought over from Royal Opera House. Mm-hmm. And the thing that you have probably heard of, even if you don't know these guys' names, is the 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 policy of casting most major roles five years in advance started with these two. Really, and so, I did not know that. Or and they were they. I, I don't know if they came up with it, but they were major major proponents of it. So John, he is someone who has really reshaped the way that opera companies work hmm. in America uh, over the last thirty almost forty years. Uh, and it will be interesting to see what happens next. That's uh, some big shoes to fill, certainly. Uh, the one that's jumped out to me, uh, unfortunately, is the uh, is the article about Alessandro Siciliani, uh, which yeah. I think I pronounced it correctly. Um, I mean, obviously, I feel like we have an obligation to talk about these things, but whenever they happen, you kind of like feel like, this is the same story. Exactly. You know what it's, I mean? It's so frustrating to read the same warning signs, the same red flags, that even in this case, there were channels that people, they in, in many cases, and also this one, um, they there were there were complaints that were raised you know this didn't just get swept uh, uh, this didn't get swept on the under the rug but there were multiple multiple complaints of people being harassed yeah it's it's really and this one isn't just the sexual harassment just the the, the conduct of uh how he mistreated singers and uh, um and just uh really caused a lot of people to leave the organization long before the title 9 complaint was put in place uh, is, is is really something. I, I do want to read a little bit. This is from uh, the Singers uh, Forum. The Singers Forum on Facebook. On yeah. Facebook, yes. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit. Uh, he said, uh, I don't know who the poster is, um, but uh, here's the quote. Quote, while the staff was nothing but professional and positive uh, when this person was uh, working with Opera Project Columbus, the maestro is anything but. I stuck around for a while because I loved the people I worked with, but his behavior on and off the podium made rehearsals insufferable and performances nerve-wracking. With the rise of Me Too, his antics are being called out. However, the board and the donors are standing stalwartly behind him while letting some of the best people, uh, both staff, practically all of them, and singers, walk away. Yeah, the poster goes on to say, if we, the singers, keep taking work with companies who don't remove abusive, unprofessional leadership, we'll continue to have abusive, unprofessional leadership. We deserve better. You deserve better. And I think sometimes we forget this because at the end of the day, we want the paycheck and get scared about being replaced because, let's face it, there are 3,000 and some other sopranos <laughs> who can do your job. But by giving in, we perpetuate a massive problem and make things worse for our colleagues. And uh, we are using our our platform here on upper box score to elevate these words because they bear repeating and they bear remembering for not just for classical music and not just for classical singers but really we've we've continued to see over the past couple of years that this is true in all industries yes this is the, one of those things that uh it, it only becomes acceptable once we make it unacceptable 
Um, uh, and I, I think that's what the Me Too movement is all about, and that's what gives me hope for eventually getting rid of this stuff in the future. Uh, so now on happier news, <laughs> it was a good week for women uh, conductors, right? This week, this is a story after story. And you know, I actually was uh, thinking about it this week because I, I attended three operas. Technically, one was a double bill um, this week. And I realized that all three of them uh, were all conducted by women. And I was like, yeah, I think this might be the first Chicago time. Chicago Opera Theater with uh, Lydia Yankovska. Yeah, uh, and uh, and uh, Dead Man Walking at the Lyric. Uh, oh, I forgot. Nicole Paymont, I believe was yes, her name. Yeah. So. Um, and and it, it just, it, it's so interesting how unusual it was, but that realization made me so happy inside. I, I thought it was great. I know, hopefully, eventually, that won't be something that is, that needs to be remarked upon. But yeah, yeah, hopefully. You know. I think the other big story, obviously, obviously, is um, the composer, is it Kanye Wiest? I think uh, it's Vest. Vest, oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> so He's starting a, a dueling Nabucco. <laughs> I, I'm I'm genuinely really interested to to see what this turns out to be because all all the news outlets are calling it an opera. I doubt it is. Do you think that he knows that in the Verdi Nebuchadnezzar opera, it's about a man who gets struck down because of his own arrogance? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be just great though? What if, <laughs> if he if it's just like classical grade trolling? What if it's an ama- What if it's just an amazingly well written? Uh, self-aware uh, uh, commentary on his whole persona. What if it's really good? <laughs> uh, we'll see know. what Oliver thinks yeah. next week. I'm sure we'll be hearing <laughs> I, what Oliver thinks I feel like it. I can already feel his opinions like c- coming up behind me. And uh, w- with that, we probably have to end the show. <laughs> if we can. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Do you have a good call for me, Matt? For me, Matt? I do. Even though it's the very similar to the last good call I had on this show, I listened to Benjamin Bernheim's Tenor Chestnuts album. That's not what it's called, but it's like Tenor Greatest Hits and a couple new things uh, <laughs> on Spotify this week. And I cannot get over how much I love his voice. This man should be singing everything everywhere. Everything everywhere. Everything everywhere. Ringing endorsement. Even in Venice. <laughs> Especially in Venice. Um, um, my good call, I kind of jumped the gun, and I think my, my real good call is probably the, the women conductors this week. Um, but I also want to uh, put out there that Akhenaten, the live in HD uh, broadcast of Akhenaten by uh, Philip Glass is going to be this weekend, and I'm desperately trying to get off work so I can see it. Uh, but if not, uh, all you uh, listening out there... It's gotten rave reviews. Listening and every... us, let me know how it yeah. is. <laughs> Give me a play-by-play description. Uh, tweet me. <laughs> Maybe um, I'll go just to rub it in your face. <laughs> Maybe Oliver will go just to rub it in my face. I doubt it. We'll see what happens. All right, that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Muscal and Somil Songvi. Our announcer is Norm Woodell, who can be found at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for all Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, whether you're
your city is underwater, like in Venice, or completely frozen, like it is here in Chicago. We're back on Monday, November 25th at 9 p.m. Central for more opera, more hot takes, and more co-hosts, probably. Join us then. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment.